If you will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We started last Lord's Day with a study of this particular text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, which says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are also doing. Last Lord's Day, I shared with you a principle out of the first verse, really, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because Paul there says, now concerning, which would ordinarily mean a complete change of subject. But here I think Paul uses this phrase, now concerning, as we should rather see it, and that is not a wholesale change of subject, but a marked transition. To be speaking about resurrection of deceased believers and the rapture of living believers, which Paul has described in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and now a little bit of a different subject, but it's all about eschatology, and this in chapter 5, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So here's what Paul does. He talks about in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, what we have called the parousia, parousia just meaning his coming, his appearance. And a part of that coming in a latter stage of its development is what Paul calls the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And Paul says, I don't really need to write you concerning this, times and seasons, You don't have any need to have anything written to you, he says in verse 1. But then he goes on, of course, to say, but let me uh, tease out this idea of the day of the Lord. Now, the reason he does that, and we'll get to that next time in a couple of weeks, because he's contrasting these Thessalonians as day people, not night people. The night people, the people of the darkness, symbolizing the idea of unbelief, those who are against Christ, those who fail to repent and believe in Christ, those are people of the darkness, and that's very evident, isn't it? And Paul says, we're of the day, we're day people, and we'll study that as we go along. That's the main reason he's talking here about the day of the Lord. So he doesn't get into all of the details about the day of the Lord. That would, be, uh, that would be an epistle of its own. But he does say, even though I don't have any need to write anything to you because you're fully aware, I will tell you in verse 2, he says, the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. And I told you last time, 
I think the reason why he goes on to speak about this, in addition to talking about day people and night people, is because Paul wants them to be reinforced with such teaching. Reinformed, taught again, reinforced, reinforcement bar, as I used that that analogy before, the idea that even though I'm not going to tell you everything, I need to tell you about the day of the Lord and its suddenness. That's why he writes about it here. Now, he is going to write more about it in 2 Thessalonians. He's going to sort of, in a sense, follow a similar pattern. In chapter 1, he's going to talk about Jesus' second coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and in chapter 2, he's going to talk about the day of the Lord again, and he's going to give even more details about that, but not everything. Because even in 2 Thessalonians, both in chapters 1 and 2, that's not his overall purpose, to give all of the schema of the day of the Lord. So we're a bit tantalized because there's a lot to say about the day of the Lord. There's a lot to say about the second coming of Christ within this day of the Lord or the day of the Lord within the second coming of Christ. But the first thing he wants these Thessalonians to know for certain is this. I want to reinforce and retell you about some elements, and one of those elements, probably at the top of Paul's mind as he writes these things, is the sudden destruction that will come upon those who are not ready or are unwilling to face the day of the Lord. That's certainly on his mind, because that is what he writes. Look at the middle part of verse 2, and then on to verse 3. This will sort of be what covers things for us, although I'm going to read you some Old Testament passages to help fill in this terrible coming day of the Lord. But notice what the Apostle Paul says in the middle part of verse 2. You're fully aware that, and here it is, the day of the Lord. You see that phrase, the day of the Lord. I need to stop right there and just let you know. I've hinted at it before, but I need to say it very explicitly now. When Paul talks about the day of the Lord, he's not talking about one day. He's talking about a season of days. Indeed, he's talking about a season of years. This is not a 24-hour day. We're so locked in, especially here in the West, in our minds, of a day. A day. It's a 24-hour period. It's daytime and nighttime. And when that 24-hour period ends, we're on to the next day. That's not what Paul means here. He doesn't say the day of the Lord as though everything about our eschatology, everything about the future, about uh, the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and everything in between and, and even as the day of the Lord itself uh, comes to an end and then there's a millennial kingdom and uh, that's a thousand years. And then there's even time after that that we call the eternal future because that's when there will be the eternal heaven and the eternal earth and the heavens and the earth will actually merge together in a recreation of the entire cosmos so that, as Paul says here in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we will then forever be with the Lord. And, of course, you are saying in your minds right now what I'm saying, and that is, well, of course, none of that could be in just one 24-hour period. Of course, there has to be much more time, time that is as we know it. So put out of your minds this idea that the day of the Lord is a 24-hour day. It isn't. Day, of course, stands for epics and seasons and all the things that are going to happen. And you know what? brothers and sisters, that allows us to know then that this concept of the coming of Christ, the second coming, the parousia, the appearing of the Lord, um, His manifestation in His glory is also that which comes in stages. 
And those stages have all kinds of epics and events as they roll into one another in these various steps or phases or stages. And we need to understand that. You say, well, then stop right here and start wherever it starts and tell us everything about the future so that we'll know everything in all of its various stages and in all of its various steps. Well, I I can't do that. I'd have to launch into an 87-part study. And there would be no one left here because you'd all be saying, enough of this, enough of this. But it is important. And that's why we're to be biblical expositors and for you, studiers of all the Scripture. Because if you put all of the Scripture together, it takes a long time and there is a grand amount of eschatological passages, passages on the future, passages on the last days, prophecy, prophecy fulfilled, near fulfillment and far fulfillment, and we'll talk about those things later. This is This is what Paul is talking about. But he only takes, in a sense, one subject, one point here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he says it in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, that's another way of saying what he's just said in The end of verse 2, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then he gives even a third illustration, and that is, as labor pains, verse 3, come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. All, All three of those are talking about one thing, and that is suddenness. Suddenness. And that's not even all the things that are wrapped around this concept of the day of the Lord. There's so many other things to talk about. But Paul wants to let these Thessalonians know that the one point that he wants to make here in chapter 5 is this. The day of the Lord will come suddenly. That's his point. And he uses here these three solemn metaphors about the suddenness of that day. And notice in the first part of verse 2, He mentions that very idea of a thief who comes in the night. A thief who comes in the night. And what does a thief come in the night to do? To steal. To rob. To be an armed burglar. Someone who comes into your house when you least expect it. This is the truth about this metaphor. No one knows when the thief is going to show up. If you knew, you'd be what? Prepared. You'd be armed. You'd say, I knew exactly when you were coming. Hands up. This is is the point Paul is making, and it transcends all the centuries, doesn't it? A thief who comes in the night, which is obviously interesting, the thief who comes in the night is parallel, isn't it, to the darkness. That's what thieves do. They come so that they cannot be seen because they live for everything that comes in the darkness. This is the thief who comes in the night. And Paul says this is like the day of the Lord. It's going to come upon people when they absolutely do not know what's happening. It's sudden. That's his first metaphor. Here's his second. I just read it to you. While people are saying there is peace and security or peace and safety. This specific phrase, peace and security or peace and safety, that that ought to jog your memories, because that's actually something that's reiterated in the Old Testament, right? And that's why I've given to you as a little sub-point here that this is probably something akin to false shepherds, false rulers who lie and deceive. You say, why do you you do that? This sounds like some kind of a military intervention. Well, it, it certainly is that. 
but it's also something related to the teachers, say, for instance, in Israel. False teachers, that is. False shepherds. False guides. Just like Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, look, before the coming terrible day of the Lord, there will be false Christs, false shepherds, false teachers. And what will they be saying? Here's what they'll be saying. Peace and safety is in our land. Peace and safety. You don't have to turn there, but but listen to Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy, Jeremiah the prophet says, for unjust gain. In other words, this is what's happening in Israel. This is what's happening, and it's horrible. Everybody is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They're even in on it. They should be the ones who are saying, don't do this, Israel. We're your prophets. We're your priests. And we're telling you that this is wrong. This is against the Lord. Don't, don't do this. Don't be greedy for unjust gain. And the denunciation of the prophet Jeremiah on these false shepherds is this. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That may be what the Apostle Paul had in mind, something like that. Peace, peace. Or or how about the cynic of 2 Peter? Where is the promise of his coming? Everything remains as it is. The Lord isn't coming. Who is the Lord? He's not coming to deal out recompense against those who are greedy for unjust gain. He's not out for that. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. Let's just uh, live it up. Let's just grab up all the gusto. There's nothing going to happen in the end. And through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 6.15, and the Lord himself responds through that prophet, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not all ashamed. They did not know how to blush They didn't even know what to say when they saw the evil, and they should have blushed at it. They should have been ashamed by it. And then the words of Scripture are these, Jeremiah 6, Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. It's going to come. While the whole world says peace and safety, peace and security. Nothing's going to happen to us. Then the commander-in-chief, our Lord Jesus Christ, will come to mete out retribution to those who shepherd and rule falsely. I mean, look, if, if you have rulers for a certain purpose, one of that amazing ideas of such a purpose has got to be security. Maybe it's at the top of the list. You'd say, no, it's, it's finances. It's, it's our social welfare and well-being. Well, I would say you wouldn't care a whole lot about money if uh, safety wasn't your chief concern. And can you imagine the false shepherds The false leaders of Israel are actually telling Israel everything's okay. Your leaders are are telling you that. And they're lying because they're involved themselves in greediness for unjust gain, and they're not blushing, and they're not ashamed, and it is they, along with those they're deceiving, who will fall in judgment. And then there's a third metaphor. You see it here in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's as, in verse 3, labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You don't, you don't know when the contractions will begin. And even then, so I'm told, there could be Braxton Hicks. False contractions. 
And there's, there's all kinds of waiting. And, and perhaps even the women in our lives would say, when is it coming? When is it coming? When is this birth going to eventuate? I don't know. Nobody knows. Only the Lord knows. That's the suddenness of it all. I know. I know that all of these three are intended to communicate to us this reality. Look at the end of verse 3. And they will not escape. And they will not escape. This is designed to be a signal warning of the destruction that comes in which there is no escape for those who come like a person who is completely unaware of the thief and of the false peace and of the birth of the pregnant woman. None of us know. And here's the sad reality, my friends. You and I, if, if we're very concerned about those things and we're totally occupied about those things, that actually proves that we're not people of the darkness. Because what do people of the darkness do? What do they do about the idea of the soon coming judgment of Jesus Christ upon the world? They say it's not coming. Or they say something like this, I don't care. I don't don't care that it's coming. In fact, I doubt that it's coming. But even if there was a sliver of truth among you believers who say it will come, I don't care. Perhaps it's like the person for whom they were wondering, is this uh, ignorance or apathy? And the person said, I don't know and I don't care. You see, that's that's the unbelieving life. That's That's the person who walks around in the darkness. He doesn't have the light to see and he doesn't care. He's just living his life. He's just doing his thing. And I know that some of you may say, but Lance, you still haven't given us a detailed sense of why you keep talking about these two stages of the one and final coming of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because when I'm talking about this, this day of the Lord and the day of Christ's coming, that happens at a different stage from when the church has been raptured. Because, my friends, there's a seven-year period in between. That all fits together. And sometimes the Bible writers talk about the day of the Lord in a certain way and the second coming of Christ in a certain way, and you have to find out, well, what's the schema? What are the stages? When does this happen? And when does that happen? And, And you have to, when you put it all together, determine in your mind, well, there are these epics and these stages and these phases that happen, and in these various steps, it can all finish under the rubric of the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and the millennial reign of the Lord and the eternal rule of the Lord, and you have to figure out what all of these are. And Paul doesn't give them all of that because I've already told you. Now, wouldn't that motivate you to say, I so wish I was in Thessalonica. I wish I was standing there or sitting there, and I wish I was listening to the Apostle Paul himself. And perhaps he did entertain questions, and perhaps the Thessalonians did say, well, when is this going to happen? And, and what happens here? And, and is there a stage here? And if so, in that stage, what happens? And, and, and what do we call that? And Paul, uh, why doesn't it happen all at once? And why doesn't it happen in one 24-hour day? Wouldn't that be easier for all of us? There's a hundred of those questions, a thousand of those questions. But one thing is for sure. He says in chapter 4, does he not, 
that there will be, according to verse 16, the Lord himself who will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. Uh, That archangel, that cry is announcing Christ's coming, and the second uh, trump, excuse me, the sound of the trumpet of God is undoubtedly so loud because the trumpet is actually the horn, the sound that's actually how dead people here rise they're all going to be risen. That's why he says here in verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured. That's, that's what that verb means, caught up. Even by force, we'll be caught up strenuously together with them. Who's the them? Those who have died in Christ first. And we'll both, the resurrected deceased believers and the living saints of that time when this day comes, and we both will be together with him, with each other, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's what it says. No equivocation. That's what it says. So this resurrection and this rapture will come. And the question is, when will it come? Will it come directly upon what we could call the day of the Lord? Does it come in the midpoint of that coming? Uh, Does it come in the latter part of that coming? Well, that's debatable. Because everybody, all of us, Bible teachers, theologians, commentators, we're all trying to put all the events together. You just read all the Bible verses, you're trying to figure out, well, when is this and when is this and when does this take place? And, and, and in some cases, it may take, in epics and seasons, a thousand years. You see, all this shorthand that Paul's talking about has to be coalesced with everything else that John talks about, say, for instance, in the book of Revelation and what Paul talks about and what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3 and and what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 and in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel because they add some things that Matthew doesn't. And, and, And then you're talking about the Old Testament prophets and all that they say. And you're, you're just about to say like I am, I don't think I could read and figure out all of this stuff in my lifetime. But I'm sure trying. I'm sure trying. And and when Paul talks about this day of the Lord, just taking that from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, the day of the Lord. I want to talk about that for a little minute. Okay? I want to talk about that because this is an incredibly important dimension of what we might call a section or a stage or a phase within the coming of Jesus Christ, okay? It is my contention that when Jesus comes in the air to receive us, we will go up to be with him, stage one. Wherever that falls, I think it falls on the front part of this tribulation time. But then there are a host of things that will have to happen during a period of time. I believe it to be, according to Daniel 9, 24 to 27, a seven-year literal period of time in which the Antichrist will make a covenant, a pact with Israel and For three and a half years, there appears to be, at least to the naked eye, and to the Jews particularly, that there is peace, peace and safety, peace and security. But as the arch-antichrist, the very one who is antichrist, he says peace and safety when there is no peace. And in the halfway point of that time frame of the seven years, there's a breaking of that compact, that, that pact in which they come together to forge, to sign, to live by, and he breaks such a thing, and then all Hades breaks loose. And that lasts for three and a half years, if you can believe it. And then the Lord comes. And I read it to you this morning, Revelation 19. And then when he comes, 
there's more to come after that? That's not just the end. Then there's more. And then that's not just the end. There's a thousand-year period. And then after that, right at the end of such a period, then there's another conflagration with Satan himself because he's loosed for a while. And then God in his wisdom allows this uh, false prophet and this antichrist and Satan, the false trinity, to be loose for a time so that they can have one last shot at deceiving people until Christ, God Almighty himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit put all of them forever in the lake of burning fire so that they can never do that again for all eternity. And by the way, none of that can happen in one 24-hour day. That's why you have stages, epics, seasons, phases, steps, And this is the day of the Lord. And believe this, even in addition to what I'm telling you is still even yet future to us, the prophets were talking about the day of the Lord back then, and at times when they talked about the day of the Lord, they talked about it both in its near fulfillment, like maybe uh, Babylon, maybe the Chaldeans, maybe the Assyrians, and what they were doing to trouble Israel, and there was a near fulfillment of the day of the Lord because all of that, even back then, in a sense was the day of the Lord, but then there's also a far fulfillment because, remember, these are prophets, and they're prophesying not only what's going to happen to them potentially in their own lifetime, and it did to some, and for others, it's still in the future, and even 20-plus centuries later, it's even going to be future to us. But their prophecies will still come to pass. And it'll all be under the rubric of what we call the day of the Lord. You want to see some of that? Turn to Isaiah the prophet. And of course, as you're turning there, some of you are going to say, okay, well, let's, let's figure out if it's actually Ezekiel saying this and it's talking about the day of the Lord. When, when is this and who was this? Well, then we'd have to do an exposition of Isaiah's prophecy, Right? And then when I show you other passages, you're going to say, when, when, when? Because it is the fact of all of us, myself included, to be tempted and tantalized with this. And when is this going to happen? And and who's going to do what? And and when will this be? And and what are the signs? That's human nature. I I read that before, didn't I? What what are the signs of of all of this? And and, and when shall, shall these things be? That's just human nature. We, we want to know the end as well as we know the beginning. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Now, I, I'm already telling you that some of these things have a near fulfillment, possibly even in Isaiah's day or after his death, the prophecy will still come true, and of course it did. And then there's also a far fulfillment. And when you get into the latter chapters of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, for instance, those things speak far more than a near fulfillment. They speak of a far fulfillment, some other day, some other time, some other epoch. And when it comes to that day of days, we could say, That's the day of the Lord Jesus Christ coming, and that's the terrible great day of the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. I want you to notice uh, verse 12, for instance. For the Lord of hosts has a day, a day, against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, And the Lord alone will be exalted when? In that day. Both near fulfillment, far fulfillment, both are true. Verse 19, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to do what? To terrify the earth. 
In that day, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Oh, yes, there... There are times and epochs and seasons in our history that have already passed in which the terror of the Lord was meted out in a moment, in a time, in a season. And it's also going to happen at the end. And of course, here's what people say. And, and when shall that be? And here's my answer. At the end. When I candidated to become the pastor of the Bible Church of Little Rock and I was there in the in the search committee interview. And one of the gentlemen who was on their elder board at the time said, when you come here, how quickly will you teach the book of Revelation? And I said, my plan is to teach the book of Revelation at the end. And he said, when will that be? And I said, none of us know. None of us, I don't know. And, and, and we always want to be saying things like that. Well, when, when is it? When's it going to be? I, I, I need to know this. Well, then look at chapter 13 of Isaiah. Chapter 13, verse 5. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. You say, can that be fulfilled in a near fulfillment and also fulfilled in a far fulfillment? There, you're on to something now. You see, the, the, the temptation is to only look at certain texts and say, well, he was talking about a specific event and only about such a specific event and it either is going to happen to them shortly or it will happen to them at some point and that's all there is. I say not so. I say everything that I just said will happen and it will happen then but it will also happen then. And the then of when it happens will be the great and terrible day of the Lord, the most terrible day of days. Like Jesus said, it will be like a day that there never has been and never will. You see, this is, this is what we're talking about. Look at some of the others, even some of the, the, the so-called minor prophets, not minor because they were minor, but minor because their books were minor, minor in length. Look at Joel. Look at Joel's prophecy. I picked this one out because you know that in Acts chapter 2, there was a near fulfillment that was the day of Pentecost. But there were things said in this Joel 2 prophecy that didn't come true at Pentecost, and that's because there will be in the days to come a far fulfillment of those days, and it will be the day of the Lord. Look at Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Isn't that interesting? And perhaps that may have even been in Paul's mind, and it triggered him to talk about the darkness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, right? Because Joel says it right here. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You see? Sure, the, the, the people for whom that may have happened to and certainly did, it was awesome and terrible to them. But there's going to come a time, my friends, 
the day of days of the day of the Lord in which it will be the most awesome and terrifying thing that the world has ever known or will ever know. That's why we've got to be saying to people around us, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Especially for those who say, I don't know and I don't care. Warn them in love. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28. This is is amazing. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is that Acts 2 fulfillment of Pentecost. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. But then notice... Verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And, and do you see what's happening now? You look at the part of Joel 2 that's quoted in Acts chapter 2 and you read up to a certain point and you're saying, well, it certainly was fulfilled in that day of Pentecost. But then you read some of this other and you say, that was not fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. Which means that it is yet to be fulfilled even 20 plus centuries later. But make no mistake about it, my friends, it will be fulfilled. God's word will never return void. It will accomplish that which he intends as he sends it. Look at Micah. Look at the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Listen to the coming destruction. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, verse 2, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open. And my friends, the book of Revelation says that's exactly what happens when Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and there's a massive earthquake, and the entire area is split into three different places. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. This is is a judgment text. This is the the day of the Lord. Look look at Micah chapter 2 verse 4. In that day, in that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to the apostate. He allots our fears, fields. Verse 5, therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about these things. And you say, is there a Is there a kind of near fulfillment? Of course there is. Of course there is. It happened to them then, and it will happen to them later. This is is an amazing thing. Look Look at Nahum. Nahum, right after Micah, Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger, 
His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, verse 7, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Serious stuff. And prophet after prophet after prophet is speaking of these very things. Look at Habakkuk. Look at the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Why does he say that? Why does he say in wrath, remember mercy? Because in verse 6 it says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. He goes on to talk about God's anger. Verse 9, you stripped the, the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in, it, in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Silah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. Folks, that's, that's a far fulfillment in the day of the Lord. That day, even if there's some initial days in which this has happened that is passed to us, but there will be days of that day of the Lord that are future to us. Zechariah, Zechariah. This is, this is an amazing truth. These are, these are those prophets where you might have difficulty thumbing through your pages because they've not been read much. And you're going to have to peel pages off and read it. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. This is a major prophet who's talking about major future things. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Notice the day. Look at verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Paul quotes that. And all his holy ones. All his, all his holy ones with him. Look at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the, of the other. They're even going to be fighting against each other as Scripture tells us. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, and the garments in great abundance and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. And it's exactly what the book of Revelation says. Precisely. Oh, my friends, this is, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. Are you ready? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? As we close, go back to the Thessalonian epistles and look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
You want a little bit more of previews of coming attractions as we get to 2 Thessalonians? Here's chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's a stage 1 resurrection rapture Stage two, day of the Lord, great tribulation. And here he gives us a little bit more information, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's rapture, that's resurrection and rapture. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There it is, the day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, that day, that day will come, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, he's going to be revealed. He's the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, God with a little g, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, the true God, capital G, proclaiming himself to be God, capital G. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Yeah, he's going he's to re-remind them of that which he's already told them, and he's telling them even some more things here. And that day is going to come. And that day will come in that stage, that phase, when Jesus Christ himself will come in full vengeance. He's already resurrected and raptured those who will be together with him forever And it is like this, my friends, in this stage and phase. We will go to him in the air, and then he will come with us down here. You see it? This is is phase one, phase two. This is step one, step two. And in the middle is this day of the Lord. And you know what happens in the day of the Lord? Look back at chapter one of 2 Thessalonians, verse five. This is evidence... Paul says, of the righteous judgment of God. What evidence? Well, the persecutions, verse 4, the afflictions that you're enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Christians can say that of all the ages, All those who have been persecuted and afflicted, all believers of all times. And and what will be the recompense? Verse 7, you'll be granted relief who are afflicted, as well as we, the, the apostolic band, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, others. And when will this happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, this is the parousia, this is the second coming, this is that stage, that phase in which he literally touches down and he wages war at Revelation 19 with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's going to be a terrible day. Terrible day. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might or power. And then notice this, verse 10. When He comes on that day, on that day, the day of the Lord, to be glorified in His saints. Yes, we're going to come with Him and we are going to glorify every act that He perpetrates and to be marveled at this glorious Lord Jesus at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And you're going to be a part of that, that glorious grouping who have been snatched up with Him, resurrected to new life, and then undoubtedly in the air, in the cosmos, in the heavens, we'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be watching in the theater of the round the terrible day of the Lord. We're going to be with Christ. And we're going to watch this terrible, awful, wicked day of the Lord when He returns and He's going to return with us and we are going to see the recompense. Oh, this is, this is something you and I have to ponder. Do I want to be a part of those who have been shielded from such wrath? through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
or will I myself be here? You say, well, this seems so future. Could be any time. Could be any time. You say, well, if I'm a Christian and, and it happens today, I'll be raptured and I won't care. Don't think like that. Here's what you ought to think about. I know I'm going, and I want to grab as many people as I can to come with me in God's good design. I want to talk to as many people as I can, can, my loved ones, my friends, my family. And what you have to do is you have to tell them the bad news before you can tell them the good news. And the bad news is that there is such sin and wickedness in the human heart and the accumulated effect of the wickedness of this world that we as Christians say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And you ought to grab everyone within your power and say, you must, I pray, you must, I warn, you must, I challenge, to be averted in the day of the Lord of this great wrath. I mean, it's fun to say, do you want to have a great relationship with Jesus? Do you want to have sins forgiven? Do you want to have the glory of heaven? Do you want all of the goodies? It's entirely another to say, you are an affront to the lordship of Jesus Christ if you do not repent. The living of your own life and the doing of your own deeds in contradistinction to that which the Lord Jesus Christ commands us to be and to do is an affront to him, and you must repent. Because there's a day coming, a day affixed, when Jesus Christ will come to this earth dealing out retribution in flaming fire with his angels to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is, this is the, the bad news that has to come before the good news. And here's the good news. If you want to find that cleft in the rock, if you want to hide yourself in him, then you repent of your sins, you believe in Jesus Christ, and you ask him to save you from that great and terrible day of the Lord. And when you do, that's when real peace and safety is yours. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this is is sobering solemn words that we're hearing from the Word of God. But the glorious truth of the matter is that we can see this averted in our lives if we would but believe and repent and cling to Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from the great day of wrath, the great day of the wrath of God the Almighty. Oh, I pray that there is no one hearing my voice who is headed for that day. If indeed, as Jesus said, it's the worst war of all wars that ever shall be, when there is no more opportunity to repent. Oh, I pray that you would see a multitude of people who would have their eyes opened and their ears to hear the truth that Jesus saves. He saves us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians are proof of it. They're they're waiting for God's Son from heaven when He rescues them from the wrath to come. Oh, may it be, be so with us as well. We want to repent and believe in Jesus Christ so that we are rescued from the great and terrible day of the Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of the day and not of the night, to be those of the light and not those of the darkness. It's by your grace that we can see the truth. And may you grant us time and opportunity to tell those around us of such truth. 
We love you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for loving us first and opening our eyes so that we may be saved, delivered from the wrath to come. Pray these things in your precious, sweet name, Lord. Amen.